we can talk about the cool places I've been or the cool hunts, whatever. None of that compares to the people that I've gotten to know. That's what life is about. Like those relationships that I have with all those people. When you're passionate about something and you can share that passion with somebody and you, especially if it's something hard to do, I feel like the bond is even stronger between people who struggle through something. I, I would say that the relationships that I've made in the hunting industry when it comes to bow hunting and just hunting in general, there's no, I haven't found anything better than hunting. Okay, feeling it. All right. Well, thanks for joining. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for... It's been a little bit crazy. I I apologize. It's been uh, hectic. Since you've been here. I don't think to, so. I just, maybe that's how I assumed it would always be. Yeah. But maybe it's not as hectic. Well, it's, uh, I'd, I'd prefer to just be able to go hang out and go screw off. But I kind of did that for the last five days, bear hunting with Derek Wolf. So. That's right. Come home and uh, trying to un, unbury from emails and texts and, and get ready for tack. So. Yeah. It's kind of cold here. Are you uh, freezing to death compared to Hawaii? <laughs> I got a couple layers on. Yeah. I don't know what the deal is. It's like uh, supposed to be summertime, and then this week got cold. Yeah, it's called Montana. Mm. It's like you get all four seasons every month, yeah, it well, seems like. What Josh is telling you is uh, don't move here to Montana. Stay exactly. In, stay in California. Don't move to Hawaii either, right? It's no. kind of terrible there. Yeah, you can visit. Just don't forget to leave. Yeah. Dude, we went to we went to Maui this, this winter in... Um, I told my wife, I'm like, I, well, I, I want to travel to the other islands first because I don't want to just fall in love with the first thing that I go to. And it's easy to fall in love with any place that's warm when it's February here and snowing or March, I guess we went. But, uh, man, it was so nice over there. It's just so nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place to live, beautiful place to grow up. Uh, growing up there, you don't really know how good you have it until you leave. Yeah. Move away leave and then especially living through winters you realize man i gotta get back to that yeah to, to the islands you know and then when i had my daughter um that's what really really kind of like brought me back home made me realize i mean we're already home when we had her but made me realize that i didn't want to leave and uh that's where i wanted to raise my kids you know yeah i always tell my kids that with montana that same here. They don't really realize how good they have it. Like, you know, get off school and go out for a hunt, right? Or Hank, like, literally takes his bow and walks back behind the house and, and hunts or goes fishing. Um, you know, the hiking you can go do, riding motorcycles or four-wheelers. Like, all the things that you get to do that um, kids in other, like, in big, big cities, uh, you know, don't even know exist, don't have the opportunity to do it all. You know, and, and I'm sure the kids that do know it exists, like they get to do it maybe one time every couple of years on like a family vacation. Um, it's it's hard to truly actually appreciate where you're from until I think you're about 30 years old. You start to realize how good you had it, you know. Yeah. Especially when you're in a place like Hawaii or a place like Montana that's so unique and special. Yeah, I'm glad you guys went. I'm glad you got to enjoy it. Um, Hank, he's afraid of sharks, huh? Yeah, he's uh he's kind of like his dad. He uh likes his feet on the ground, I think. Yeah. You know, it's funny cuz like you go to Hawaii and then there's people that are like asking you about grizzly bears and the fact that like 
you just have bears and lions walking around in the dark and you like <laughs> walk to the bar, barn in the dark and it's like, yeah, it's no big deal. And then you guys like, I'm like looking at where you guys are out surfing and swimming and, you know, I've watched National Geographic and they talk about how far away you can hear, you know, a shark can smell blood or something. And it's like, damn, you guys are crazy. Yeah. Not to mention the power of the water. I'm actually more fearful. I'm not really that fearful of sharks in reality. Yeah. But I am, I have a healthy respect slash fear for water, the power of water. Yeah. It's funny. Like when you're younger, you kind of get used to getting beat around in the water and you kind of learn how to go with it, but you definitely learn a really healthy respect for the water and, uh, it can beat you up when you least expect it, you know, and especially in the waves and everything. And, uh, it's fun though. Yeah. How do you, it's interesting you say that. Cause like I, I find myself fighting it. Right. And yes. like, I think working way too hard to, I actually learned a little bit this time to relax better and allow, like, I couldn't believe how much more buoyant the salt water was than like swimming in a lake in Montana. Yep. Like so, where I swam this year in Hawaii, like as far away as I got from the shore, mm-hmm. like I honestly don't think I could do that in a lake in Montana. But the buoyancy was like kind of amazing. Yeah, definitely more buoyant. Um, that's just the salt, right? And then as far as like you just learn where the power of the ocean is, especially in the waves, you learn where to be and where not to be. Um, what do you mean? Well, like when a wave is coming in, right, you kind of can sense where it's going to break at. And when when I mean it's break, the swell's coming in. Then at a certain point when it reaches shallower water, it kind of folds over itself and kind of unloads all that power. And uh, if you're in the wrong spot, you're going to get drilled. Like if you ever seen that movie North Shore? Yeah. talks about it. He's like, when the wave breaks here, don't be there. And that's because, like, you're going to get drilled. So – all that energy is just folding over itself and just pile driving into one spot. So you're able to read it. Like honestly, surfing has been one of the hardest because I grew up skateboarding and all my friends surfed and I just didn't have the patience for it. So I kind of learned it at an older age. Oh. And it was one of the harder things to get used to just because a lot of it has to do with reading the ocean. Like if you, any real good surfers, they can look out at the ocean and see this swell coming and they already know where it's going to break. Um, how far out you got to be, how far in you got to be depending on how shallow the reef is. Um, different breaks are different, but once you learn that you kind of keep yourself out of the danger zone. Okay. And then it kind of becomes a little bit more easy. And when that wave's coming in and breaking, if you are in that bad spot, sometimes you can get underneath it. And when you're just swimming, if you're not surfing, you're just swimming you could swim underneath that and stay out of that power and then just pop up out the back. And if, if the wave's coming in, you can't get out far enough to be able to get underneath it. You kind of go back in a little bit, let it disperse its energy. And then by the time it hits you, it won't be so bad. The other, you talk about the reef. That was the other part of it was like getting slammed down into that reef. I mean, that shit is, is unforgiving. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, Razor blades, basically. I mean, it's so sharp. Like, people come from other places, California, whatnot. You're used to being able to put your feet down on the rocks. When yeah. people come to Hawaii, I tell them at all costs, do not touch the reef at all costs. So when you're coming in, 
And uh, like when you're getting out of the water and it's shallow enough where you can stand up, I basically float on my belly as shallow as I possibly can. And then when it is time to finally touch the reef, what you don't want to do is you want to, you, you don't want to slide once you're putting pressure down on it. Cause then that's basically like cutting your feet, right. Yeah. Or your hands. So I put my hands down first, get stable and then put my feet down. When I put my feet down, I make sure I plant them. And then from there you can kind of walk yourself out. But yeah, it's just, I mean, coral and the, the big one also is these tube worms that they're, they grow in like this calcium. They build this calcium around them. Um, but basically what happens is the top of their little home gets crushed in and then it just basically makes these little knives that stick up. Oh, and then if you step on that and you slide your feet, it just slide, it just slices right into your feet. And then of course, like sea urchins and stuff. Well, too. so that like, was the other thing I was going to say, like we're, we're looking, we don't know what anything is, right? Yes. So we're just assuming that everything kills you. And like, we see all these little splines sticking up on everything. Yeah. And it's like, they look sharp. I don't know if they're soft or not, but they look sharp and they look like they would hurt like hell. Yeah. So like, we're, we're like trying to somewhat walk around or, cause there were spots you could get out there and kind of like stand up for a second if you needed to like fix something and you're probably supposed to stay off all that stuff, but. Yeah, definitely. Like you, you can kind of kill the reef, right? You kind of kill the coral by stepping on it. Yeah. Um, there's certain spots where it's like sandy or you can tell the reef is dead, even though there's some stuff living there still. I mean, at all costs, you should not stand on the reef. Um, Whoops. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. (laughs) Like, especially in the real popular touristy areas, you'll see a lot of the reef is dead just from everybody standing on it. What's that from? Is it from, like, the oils, or is it just from getting, just beating it up? What kills Um, it? You know, I'm not sure. If I had to just guess, it's kind of just crushing it, you know? Yeah. Just stepping on it and crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Growing up and like, and, and just living in Hawaii as an adult, like a lot of us look at Hawaii as a, as like the ultimate place to be. It's an awesome place to be, but what's, what's like the difficulty of living there and living on an Island? Yeah. So yeah, living there is a lot different than just visiting there for vacation. Right. So, um, work can be a little hard to find unless you're, Working just, you know, a lot of the the work is either working construction, you can work construction, um, or it's somewhat in the tourist industry, right? So you're working at a restaurant, you're working in ecotourism, whether you're a boat captain or whatnot. So, which is all good, that kind of stuff. Um, the pays so-so. It's not really, you're not getting paid a ton, you know, and uh, stuff can be expensive. Obviously, Hawaii can be expensive, just like a box of cereal can be 10 bucks or a gallon of milk. Um, There's certain things we almost just don't buy just because how much they cost, and you just give up having them. Um, Like what? Just like milk for a long time. I didn't drink milk for a long time just because it's so expensive. And then some meats. Obviously, we can just hunt for our own meats, but if you just wanted to go buy meat and stuff, it's expensive, and you got to pick where you buy it. Obviously, you'd want to support like local grocery stores and stuff, but something—I mean, you just go broke sometimes doing that. And well, so I noticed that like we're spoiled when we go to a grocery store here. Like a meat section will be really big and like have a ton of options, and there's just a a lot there. And 
you know, we, we had a barbecue at our place where we were staying, we were staying at a friend's house and, um, it was interesting. There was definitely less selection for like what we're used to going down and buying, you know, yeah. pork chops and steaks and some of that. I mean, you can find it, but it definitely wasn't, it didn't seem like just the quality, the, the amount, the options, the different cuts, like it was definitely reduced down. Yeah. And, and you learn where to get certain things, you know, um, a lot of locals just, you end up shopping at Costco and just buying stuff in bulk cause it's cheaper. Yeah. And then we do have like a real, at least on our Island in Maui too, we have a real healthy cattle, uh, ranching, um, businesses, you know, and so you, you can get some good local beef there. So yeah. You just got to know where to look. And a lot of it, sadly, even a lot of the fish we catch, a lot of the cattle, it gets shipped off the Island. You know, it's weird. You go to a local grocery store and you know, all the boys are catching fish and then you look and there's a packaged, uh, filet of tuna that says packaged in Indonesia. So mm. it's just, you know, a lot of the stuff gets exported too because it's quality and uh, it's just a strange thing, you know. So for the most part, I, I try to, when we catch fish, um, obviously it goes to market and then we'll cut fish for friends and family. Yeah. And then when we're not fishing, we're getting fr- fish from friends and family. So it's cool. It's a, it's a healthy um, kind of a trade trade deal. Yeah. So what, what did your... When you were a kid growing up, what, what, what did your family do? So my parents own a construction company. My grandpa would build houses from the ground up. Um, and then for, form and finish, you know, all the way to cabinets and everything. So, and then my dad, he was framing houses for a long time. And that's what he'd do, he'd just frame up houses and, and, the whole process of it, building the house too, but it's kind of a legend as far as framing houses. They used to pound through them super fast. And he told me that when he finally decided to stop doing that was he was sitting there listening to a couple bicker over what kind of doorknobs they wanted. And he was kind of involved in that. And he's like, I'm done with this. So let's just do concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause usually don't, people don't complain about the concrete, right? That's under your house. Like as long as it's straight and flat, right. You're good to go. People don't pay attention as much. Yeah. So doing the concrete and then they did get into some architectural concrete where you're doing stamped and stained and uh, awesome swimming pools and spas and, you know, jacuzzis with waterfalls coming into them, that whole deal, water features. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of ground excavation as mm-hmm. well. So uh, grew up running heavy equipment since I was young. Used to just, you know, I was asking, what's funny is I was asking your daughter, Sadie, I was like, hey, how's your dad? Does he pay you well? Does he like fair? Because she's down there working right now. And she was like, yeah, you know, same. And when, when I was young, my dad would be like, hey, you know, go do this and I'll give you like six bucks an hour, eight bucks an hour. Because if, if you don't do it, then I got to pay that guy 20 bucks an hour. And they just tell you right to your face and you just be like, wait a minute. Like, it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't make, and then you'd be like, oh, whatever. Like, you know, go work. And so my parents were a little bit the opposite where they, um, they figured they would rather pay their kids and have their kids save money. And like, but we never got like a, uh, uh, what do you call it? An allowance, allowance. Like they weren't going to just hand you money. Um, but my parents would, 
would rather pay you and pay you well to help you earn a savings and get a savings instead of giving you money, but make you earn it. But if anything, I was probably overpaid a little bit when I helped in my parents' excavation business. But when I was actually, I mean, my dad would kind of actually argue that and say like, well, the good thing about like when he had me working for him in like junior high and high school is like, I kind of knew what needed done. I was no risk. I wasn't, you know, going to sue him or all this other stuff. But I also like knew the process. I knew the job. A lot of that training happened as I was a little kid, like all the way through. And so by the time I got into high school, I would take a dump truck and a backhoe like one direction and go do something. And my dad would go another direction. Like I would like do a job and he would have had to have paid, you know, well, he probably wouldn't have found somebody around there that could really be trusted to do that. So, um, but his, his thing always was like, well, if I'm going to pay $20 an hour to Joe Blow and he's probably going to quit me in the fall when I really need him anyway, I'll just pay my kid 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. That's awesome. And he can also make sure I don't quit, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's tough. Like my kids, when they work in the shop, they actually don't like Sadie had to come meet with Andrew yesterday because she's not supposed to really start until next Monday. She was supposed to be at basketball camp this week, but she hurt her shoulder and she had an MRI uh, yesterday. And so she missed this camp. And so she's here this week. And I was like, well, if you want to start, you should go talk to Andrew and see if you can. But she had to go talk to Andrew because technically all those employees downstairs work for Andrew. Yep. But she had to go talk to him about it, make the plan, you know, that whole nine yards. Um, I don't want my kids to get special treatment, but I also don't want them to get unspecial treatment yeah. because they're my kid. Totally. So they're starting their wage just the same as if I hired, you know, Joe Blow off the street. Yeah, and they're doing the same quality of work, you know, if not better, they have that um that personal connection to it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So yeah, I just grew up like similar to you, you know, running excavators, backhoes, whatever, just getting put on jobs to do that. Yeah. And then um, you know, middle school, early high school, they started planting coffee as well. We had a, we had a ranch property that he had bought and it's pretty far up in the Hills. Like it used to take about two, three hours to get there. He rallied some of the neighbors together to pave the road to go up there. So it's quicker. Um, so you get up there a lot quicker and then he just, I don't know what the itch he had to plant some coffee planted some coffee and it did real well and won some awards and then that kind of like just snowball effect that whole business and here's a liable business like can make money at it tastes good so and he's a lot like me he likes to have his hands on the whole process a lot like you how you're making your knives here Mm -hmm. so everything from the mill the dry mill wet mill and then to roasting it and, and packaging it and everything so eventually ended up with all that equipment to be able to do that himself and to be able to control the whole process. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of grew up learning that whole process as well and how coffee's grown and milled and roasted and packaged and all that stuff. So it's, it's pretty unique. It's pretty cool. So it's cool. You grew up kind of having modeled and seen uh, more of that self-employed side, Mm -hmm. like with what you're doing today and whatnot you're you're also 
trying to make it in your own like self-employed type way instead of yeah. just the eight to five day job yeah. um, down at the docks or whatever. Um, yeah, You grew up much like I did where I saw my parents and there's also the struggles associated with that. Um, a lot of times more struggles than, you know, like when I was a lineman, I just went to work eight to five every day and like they just told me what I had to do and there was really no stress. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much just there and you just went and did it. Um, but there was also no freedom. Yeah. And, and there was definitely a ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. It's a blessing and a curse. Like, yeah. uh, I have a really hard time working for other people. Um, yeah, my, I grew up watching my parents just doing my dad, just doing whatever came to his mind. And he's, he's an entrepreneur in every sense of the word. Like if you knew him, he's all over the place and I don't know how he holds it together. Um, but yeah, I have a hard time holding down. Like I have no problem working hard. And if somebody, like if I came here to work for you, for instance, like I love that someone just tell me what to do and I can just show up every day and just do that. Mm -hmm. But over time, three, four years, I'm like, either my head thinks it could do it better or I just want to go do something else. So I have a hard time holding down a job and all my closest friends and especially like the successful ones, they're all firefighters. And I, that's like, I blew it. You know, I kind of like wish, but even that, I, I don't think I would have done well. I definitely think I could have done well there in when it comes to doing the job. But I think my brain just, uh, a part of me, I feel like it's cursed sometimes because I, I just wish I would be able to just do something, um, consistently yeah but that gets into the next part i was going to ask you about because you know i was going to ask you where this adventure uh explorer adventurer thrill seeker whatever side comes from where that started or what age and whatnot and i'm i'm guessing it was pretty early but if you were that other type of personality then you probably wouldn't be like sitting here today going to total archery challenge and then potentially training, you know, soft guys to drive and rally racing and all these different things. Right. So like the things that make you maybe not so good at one, one thing, like not so like say content to just settle in and just kind of, kind of live it out, which we definitely need people like that. But I, I was the same way. I worked at the power company for, you know, a few years, it was really nice because I went away from the self-employed thing and like all the stress went away. You show up and do your thing. It's like, man, this is nice. Mm -hmm. Like, but five or six years into it, um, like, okay, well, this is pretty much it like forever. Mm -hmm. Forever is a long time when you're 30 years old, you know? And so, um, I think we're similar from the standpoint that like you do something for five or six years tops for like you say three or four years and then you're immediately like okay well am I advancing in this am I going to be the boss am I going to go all the way to the top of this company or like you say can I do it better but if you're in the if you're in that weird position where you know you're kind of topped out um then you immediately your eyes start to wander yeah and look across the street like well what's going on over there yeah you know yeah I like what you have here with Montana Knife Company uh, I started a clothing company 
for a while, had like a surf skate clothing company in Hawaii, had a screen printer. I thought that was going to be it for me because I felt like I could combine everything that I loved in that world, right? Like I like making films. I like taking pictures. I like surfing. I like skating, um, being outdoors. The brand was very much based around uh, inspiring people to be in the outdoors and also helping kids out doing just get, keeping them busy doing something fun and productive and not just sitting at home, uh, you know, playing video games or whatever it is, and, and mainly just kind of keeping them off drugs and, and alcohol. So, because I've seen a lot of my friends go down that path when I was young. And so that clothing company kind of fizzled out just when I had my daughter, uh, was busy doing that, and then we started building a house. I kind of just threw all that to the side. But it's similar in the way of like Montana Knife Company, it has your passions, but you're not just doing one thing, right? Like you're not physically down there putting together knives, even though you have in the past, you've done that. Right. Um, but you're, you're always getting to do new things. Like people will be like, oh yeah, you're just like on that bear hunt last week, huh? Was that fun? You're on vacation. Right. That is, that's part of your job. You know, that's part of your business. Yeah. And it keeps it fresh. It keeps it entertaining. You're getting to make make little films. You're getting to design new knives. So I felt like you've, you've really hit a sweet point with it, and it's inspiring. Honestly, like being here this week, I'm, I'm super inspired by it and just seeing it. And I, I really love to see the whole process of how things are made. And I just went through the whole process of everything from making the sheaths to assembling the knives, putting the scales on and um, sharpening it and Right. So, well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I, what's exciting about what we're doing right now for me is there is no ceiling. Like we were just talking, like to, to me, there's there, um, uh, it all, every, every month that we go by here, it still just kind of feels like the beginning. Cause there's so much that we're trying to work on. I mean, I was just on a call. You were probably kind of overhearing some of it, but like all the design stuff that we're trying to work on for next year and all the little changes. And then there's all the new stuff we're trying to do. And, um, that's the part about running your own business is, is if you're really super actively trying to grow, there's always that excitement, always that push. And there's never that like, well, this is it. Like nothing really changes from here. And then every day I'm going to go into work and someone's going to tell me what to do. It's, it's, it's definitely not that way. I, I wonder for you though, where did, cause we'll get into like all the stuff that you do, but like, where did this sense of adventure, um, the, like yeah. the skateboarding, the biking, all that stuff, where did that start? So, I mean, my parents obviously introduced me to a lot of things. And one thing with my dad, he's a, he's a strange, it, now that I'm a dad, there's definitely things that I, I'm trying to do a little different, but like, I'd never knock him for the things that he did well. And one of the things that he did well was is he gave me the opportunity to learn whether it was the tools that I needed to do something. He wouldn't necessarily sit down and tell you how to do it, but he would definitely give you the tools to sit there and, and oh, you need to work on that car? There's the tools over there. And like right. a lot of, and, and like not bug me too much about having a broken down car sitting there. So, uh, I would say, I mean, my first real sense of freedom was skateboarding. I, I mean, that's the first, my first love. And I'm not 
anything super good at it. It's just like my first real love was like skateboarding and it allowed me freedom of something I could just go and just do outside and practice and just be in my own world. And then I made some friends doing it and I would get dropped off in town to skateboard all day. I mean, I could never imagine letting my kid do that. Yeah. But I mean, 10, 11 years old, just dropped off in town. No cell phone. No cell phone. Yeah. No, I mean, we, it's crazy. Like, you know, we'd, we'd be stealing stuff from stores. Um, like nothing crazy. We wouldn't be stealing like gold chains or anything. I was like stealing sodas and stuff. Yeah. Like, cause I'm thirsty. Yeah. So you learn a lot of street smarts and like a lot of survival through that and running into homeless people and, you know, people getting in fights and stuff like that, you know, riding through traffic and stuff. So you learn a lot of street smarts. I'd keep like a Taco Bell cup in my backpack and I'd go get free refills whenever I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Um, you knew all the like homeless trails that go to all these different spots. And, uh, it, but it was like a sense of freedom, yeah. you know, and it's good and bad because for me it was great. Uh, and I've seen a lot of kids though go down the wrong path with it because it was like, nobody's watching us let's smoke some weed right let's drink some alcohol and then stay in that rut into their like actual adulthood oh absolutely and uh or you know some it just it's a bad it's it's weird because i grew up my aunt and uncle were alcoholic cokeheads mm-hmm. so i seen it closely and this is only reflection when i'm older when you're young you don't know right what's normal what's not you know like getting picked up for my aunt and you know she'd have a mcdonald's cup with coconut and she'd be pouring uh jack daniels in it while she's picking us up from school you know so it's like to me looking back you're like damn but at the time you don't even know what's going on you know and like parties and coke on the counter and you're just see, you're just seeing everybody having a good time. And you're like, man, these guys are rocking, dude. Yeah. ACDC's pumping and you know, fun. Van Halen. And you're just like, yeah, dude, these guys are partying, you know? And like so but for some reason, when I was that age, I didn't I didn't want to be a part of that. Yeah. Um so my so you, friends, you were able to avoid the drugs. I was able to avoid the drug. You know, my friends were older than me. I was 10, 11 years old. They were 13, 14. They'd be like, oh, you want to smoke some weed? And they'd go over there. And I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to skate. And they'd go over there and smoke. And I'd just let them do their thing, you know. And But, you know, it was real eye-opening for me. One of my close friends, he ended up getting into some bad drugs, laced with something. And he actually ended up telling me later that it was meth. And... I ran into him later when I was 12, 13 years old, and he was a totally different person. And really? I'm talking like brain fried. Really? You know, where you're, you're having trouble talking to him. So I knew at that point, I was like, mm, I got to kind of keep my distance. But that skateboarding definitely gave me that sense of freedom. From there, um, somebody had given my dad a little PW50 dirt bike mm-hmm. for me to ride. And my cousin, my older cousin, thankfully, I have two sisters, but my cousins, I grew up with like brothers. And thank God I had them because they were older than me. They had their driver's license. And my oldest cousin, Ryan, he would come pick me up and take me dirt biking. He had a dirt bike. So 
13, 14, got heavy into dirt biking, and that's all I wanted to do. Like, that's yeah. why that's the way my brain works. Like, when I find something I love, that's all I want to do. And I'll neglect everything in my life just for that thing. When you're a kid, that's not a problem, right? Yeah. So I got into dirt biking heavy. That's all I wanted to do. And then wanted to do, like, race, but then also do freestyle stuff. We're doing tricks and big jumps. And also, like, just creating havoc, dude. I mean, we... I was telling you, we used to get loader tires and fill them with gas and, and light them on fire and roll them down the hills. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, you know, I, I, I got videos somewhere, like, no shirt on, no, just, like, in my boxers, jumping, like, this 60-foot tabletop, um, which just, like, you know, I don't know if my parents knew. I don't know if they cared. I, I Obviously, they care. But yeah. we were just, we were bad, you know, we were just wild kids making making bombs and stuff. Feral. And yeah, just feral kids and shooting guns and stuff. And so, and then I got into BMX and that was just another progression of like that. When I started riding BMX, that was in my teen years, you know, 14, 15, 16. And the group of friends we had when we were doing that was, was what molded me to who I am today. Really? Yeah. I learned a lot from those guys and like the the things that we did together and the brotherhood that we had. It was it was good and uh, it just you, you learn a lot from your peers at that point mm-hmm. and to have some peers that actually would teach you sort of like hey what do you don't don't treat somebody like that and we'd keep each other in check. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, that was that was good. So always had that like sense of adventure to do new things. Yeah. I've never been afraid to do new things. And then also like thankfully my parents took us to travel every once in a while. We'd go to the mainland and do stuff. So always knew there was something bigger out there. Living in Hawaii, it's easy to be stuck in Hawaii and just right. like not know what else is out there. Um but knowing that there was more out there, you know, uh, I think we went to Pismo, Sand Dunes, or Glamis, and just to see that whole world and all the big dune buggies and off-road trucks and just know that there's that kind of world out there to one day go adventure. Right. was huge. So you're at, when, you, when you get out of high school, were you working on the coffee farm? So through high school, just being a punk teenager, um, working here and there, whatever jobs I needed to do. And then it's pretty, I'm lucky that the way things worked out is that Volkswagen came to Hawaii. Uh, they sponsor the Ironman world championships because that's okay. what we have the iron, the triathlon there yeah. and they have the world championships. So Volkswagen sponsors it the one year, 2003, maybe 2002. This I'm still in high school. And they had the new two reg, which is like an SUV. And they wanted to build a course with some humps and bumps to let people drive these new cars and show them that it's like an off-road thing. So they got a hold of my dad. Word of mouth was that we had a dirt bike track because me and my cousin had built one. And so they're like, hey, is anybody can anybody build this? They're asking around. That, oh, yeah, you got to talk to the Boltons. They called my dad. And my dad's like, None of my employees built that track. You got to talk to my son and my nephews. And so they call me. And at this point, I think I was 16. And I met the guy down there. And I knew when I stepped out of the truck, he was looking at me like, who's this? You know? Yeah. 
punk. Yeah. And so I, and so he's telling me what he wants to do. And I was like, easy. And we had three days to do it. And I told my cousin, I was like, Brad, like, this guy don't think we can do it. Let's bust this thing out, you know. And he was, Brad's like that too. He, he'll try to prove you wrong. And uh, we built the track in one day, fine-tuned it the next. He left us with one, left us with one of the vehicles and was like, hey, get it to where it's like tipping on, one, you know, like one wheel and then tips like this, but don't roll it, you know. Get it right to the point. So we had the thing like on the finest edge you could ever get it on without rolling the vehicle over. He comes back. He's like, oh, like that's way too sketchy. <laughs> he's like, you guys need to tone this down, you know. Yeah. Well, that set us on that course of working for people like that. Oh, really? So the next year I got to high school and they're like, hey, you want to go work on the road for six months for Lexus? And I was like, yeah. I mean, of course, you're like. Yeah, driving cars and. Yep. Yeah. So six months, um, every big city in the U.S. Basically started in Southern California, went up the West Coast, went across to the Midwest. And what and, were you doing? Building tracks or yeah, just. So my cousin got hired, built. He's a little bit better equipment operator than me. And he was older than me. So he got hired to run heavy equipment and mainly just a loader and build these tracks. And all it was is like these big humps and cross bumps and little berms, nothing too crazy. Right. Then I got put on helping the rest of the crew, which were building a bunch of road courses too. So you chalk lines and parking lots, put cones down and you um, build these little courses through the parking lots. And then you got to prep the cars. The cars all got to be clean. They got to be put in position um, there's kind of a lot that goes to it. So we traveled the U S and on that trip, that was like my, my first real job. I met my, what now is my wife. Cause I was working with a cousin, but we did every big city in the U S um, New York went down to, you know, Miami and then over into Texas, we finished in Texas. So we did this huge loop. So I got to see a lot of the U S right out of high school. Yeah. And I'd never been to the East coast. So I got to see a lot of that, see a lot of the inner cities and see how that is. But we had also adventure too when we're, so that. That's I, when you start appreciating where you grew up. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just in those cities too. And so being able to travel like that for work and be comfortable in any situation, like I just go take my skateboard and go ride around the skate around the cities. And I knew like just from early childhood, just. If I'm skateboarding and I don't look like I have a lot of money, nobody's going to bother you. You know, if you're a punk, usually the punks leave the punks alone, right? Like, yeah. so if you just look like a hood rat, nobody bothers you and you can just go through and do your thing. And, um, so that kind of set me on a path of being on my own a little bit. My cousin was on those. So me and him were pretty close. Um, a lot of those jobs, they didn't want to fly you back to Hawaii. So I was couch surfing anywhere I could. Hmm. So I got used to just staying at other people's houses. My aunt and uncle lived in Burbank. Okay. So Burbank, California. Yeah. I'd stay there a lot. Um, we eventually ended up moving to Gardnerville, Nevada, which is by Lake Tahoe. Okay. So that's where we kind of settled down at. My close friend is a firefighter. I grew up with him in Hawaii. He ended up moving there, and he's a firefighter now. And just kind of started using that as a home base. And that's kind of what brought me out of Hawaii was that work. And then finally finding a place to live up there. And that's me and my cousin were riding dirt bikes and stuff at that time. And we're like, let's race. Let's start racing off road. Um, yeah. Cause we had, we had been to a couple of races and we had built a couple of trucks. So 
and that's actually metal fabrication stuff Mm -hmm. for me started when I was 13, 14 years old in Hawaii. My two cousins wanted to build full on pre-runner trucks, long travel suspension, roll cages, like full on roll cages, like whole saw through your cab, put inch and a half tubing through your, into your cab and weld all together. Yeah. So we bought a tube bender, a Miller welder and a plasma cutter. Really? And remember I talked about my aunt and uncle being cokehead alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Well, because of that, my two cousins were living with us. So my room that I had when we moved in this house, I was like, oh, I got this awesome room. And then I was like, oh, no, your two cousins are moving in. Yeah. So basically my room got two more beds in it. Yeah. One, one snores, one wheezes, you know. And I was yeah. like, I ended up sleeping on the couch a lot in that house. But, uh, um, yeah, so we started metal fabricating. I learned from early is just having our own stuff right there out the back door and just getting to build their trucks and have fun doing that. So, so that's how you ended up building in your race, race trucks. Yeah. So we ended up building a truck and a class seven, which is a midsize truck. So Tacoma's Ford Rangers built a truck and I, I don't know how, like we did it at the time. It just seemed like we were just doing it and living in the moment, looking back on it. We ended up winning the championship against some pretty high level people mm-hmm. and people a way more bigger of a budget than we did. We had a, a motor that was out of a junkyard for 1900 bucks. I think we paid for that motor Yeah, and bone stock had headers uh, and intake on it, but didn't do anything to the motor. There was people with $50,000 motors that we're racing against. And it was painful because on the big flatbed, like dry lake beds, you'd get smoked. You know, our truck would like maybe do 90. Right. And these guys were doing over a hundred and they just blow right by you. And that there's no skill in that. The technical driving driving stuff. The technical driving. We, we found quickly that our dirt biking skills transferred to trucks. So you could kind of ride the corners similar. You read the terrain, Mm -hmm. know if you had to jump over something or if you had to slow down, Right. A lot of that is just finishing the race. Yeah. Um, so you, thankfully, since we built the truck, we knew every piece of it. So, yeah, that's what brought me to the mainland racing. And um, I don't know, just do, I just whatever my passion is, I just find a way to make it happen. And I don't know, I just feel lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. But it's not without its work, you know. Right. Where was your Where was your wife from when you met her? Uh, so she grew up in Fountain Valley, California, moved to Miami cause her family's Cuban. Like her dad sweet, uh, swam to Guantanamo Bay. Wow. So they've seen like communism, right. At its truest form. Um, they ended up, yeah, he had a body shop in Costa Mesa. So she grew up in California, moved to Miami cause that's kind of where all the Cubans end up down there and speaking Spanish down there. And yeah. It's crazy. First time I went there, like go to the store and I had her godson translating for me because nobody spoke English, but I love it. Like big family culture, real, real similar to Hawaii. Is her dad, her dad still alive? Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. You'll meet him one day. He's, he's awesome. It always blows me away. Like I always tell my kids like that, that whole part about feeling lucky where you grew up and stuff. Um, Derek Wolf and I actually talked about, it. you know, Derek had a very, very hard upbringing, very, you know, very rough, but, you know, not great parenting, um, you know, pretty much lived on his own after he was 10 or 11 years old, couch surfed. And 
But we talked about that. A lot of professional athletes that make the pros actually have really pretty awful childhoods. And so they, they devote all their time and effort into like the one chance they have that they, they perceive as like their chance is sports. Um, and we talk like no matter how poor and how bad you have it in the U S you're still in the U S you still are, you're still free to make a few good choices and put yourself in a position. Even if that position is just on the, the couch of a better home of a more stable family life, uh, that, that one decision right there can then lead to some structure, some instruction, you know, a little bit of love, a little bit of, of, um, you know, tough love, which then can, you know, lead to better decision-making by that child and, and therefore ultimately end up having them be very successful, whether it's in sports or just something else in life. Um, if you're working in the salt mines in the Sudan, it doesn't matter what couch you decide to sleep on. You're still in Sudan. Yeah. You, you know, you're still in in a place where everyone is in the same situation. There is no take a bus across town and switch schools and, you know, get some foster care and everything changes type deal. Yeah. You know, so, you know, like I, I, I always wonder what people like her dad think about like what's happening now and just how spoiled and soft we've become as a society because as like, as, as you know, there is a lack of equality for sure in this country from a standpoint of like economically, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, some very poor people and there's some yeah. obviously extremely rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there does seem to be an income gap there and, and whatnot, but you're still in America. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Like capitalism, I, I'm all for it and the like the way it works, but there is some greed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some things I've told people before is when I built, I built my house and the one thing that I didn't really do on my own, I had these guys come stucco my house. Yeah. And they're Mexicans. They're, they're came from Mexico. And the, the main guy, the one guy like straight immigrated from Mexico. And he's what I know. Cause what I paid him, he's making more money than me. Yeah. And he came over here and started as a landscaper. Yep. And then ended up, just working with some stucco guys and started his own stucco company. So if you want it, it's hard to say that you can't have it because I've seen it. Um, if you truly want it, like my, my, I'm, I was born and raised in Hawaii, but my family came, my, my dad and mom moved from California. Mm-hmm. They're one of those people, but they, they were from, my, my mom grew up in like the deserts of California, like, broke ass in um, Bakersfield and stuff, Mojave. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then anyway, so he came to Hawaii with a bucket of tools and a backpack. Yeah. And would show up at job sites and be like, hey, do you guys need help today? Yep. And just start working. And same with that guy who helped me stuck with the house. I love him. He's a super nice guy. And he just like, if you want it, it's hard to say that you can't have it in this country. And it, I don't know, I don't, I haven't lived in other countries, so I don't know. It's hard to say, like, I definitely feel like it's the best country in the world. I'm sure there's other great countries out there. 
Um, but it just is a land of opportunity. And there's a reason so many people want to come. Definitely here. not an equality of, uh, of effort, effort of output. You know, the effort of output is going to be much higher for the Mexican immigrant than the, the, the kid growing up, you know, say like even like my kids just growing up in a very stable, you know, two income home, whatever. Um, but you're right. The, the chance for success is still there for anybody. Um, you know, I rent a house to some Mexican guys and they're sheet rockers. And frankly, just like the stucco guys, uh, and you see a lot of those Mexican guys, whether it's in, you know, concrete work, excavation work, roofing, sheetrocking, insulating, like all those jobs, the only thing that they all have in common is that kids like mine don't want to do it. Yeah. It's hard work. You know? I don't know if it's a hard work, but like uh, sheetrocking, that's hard work, but it's also a skill. Like my crap, my stuff cracks, you know? Yeah. And these guys are like extremely skilled at it and yeah they work hard at it you know and so um it it just takes uh it it, you know any anybody that's listening to this that's struggling in a job making 15 bucks an hour anybody can go get on a sheetrock crew and start to learn that skill and in 10 years have their own sheetrocking company and have people working for them if you want to put in that amount of work and effort it's uh that's where the separation though is and a lot of that separation much like the professional athlete you know generally the the white kid that lived in the house that's making 150 to 200,000 dollars a year isn't necessarily going to be the kid that's that makes a defensive lineman in the NFL compared to the kid that's couch surfing that's got maybe one parent if they're lucky and they're desperate, right? Desperation, uh, desperation is what drives a lot of people because yeah. it's you know even like with that sheetrocking, right? Like that Mexican guy's not going to come in here and and get an executive job or a or a you know a job in an office somewhere or whatever. But here's a bag of tools, and that guy can work his way into. I mean, the guy that's the head Mexican of the house that I rent, super nice guy. I want to say now he rents like five houses around Washington, Idaho, and Montana, and he has Mexican guys in every one of them. Yeah, and he came from Mexico himself. Um, he's bringing these young guys up all the time and putting them to work, and he's built himself one hell of a freaking company. Yeah, yeah and people might get mad, like, "Oh, you guys are stereotyping people," and we're not. I mean, it just is like. I, we've, I've worked with them hand in hand, you know, I've done jobs worse than them and been paid less than them. And when I say them, that could be any ethnicity. Um, and of course, like if, if I was Mexican or I'd want to be hanging out with my home, you know, all my guys too speak the same language and everything. Like people get too touchy in this, in this country. Right. And they get weird when you start talking about ethnicity and all this stuff. And it's like, it just is what it is, and I don't know hate for it. I, you know, like it's actually funny. It's actually quite the opposite for me. Like um, respect. Yeah. So I had uh, some white people apply for renting that house. <laughs> I had, and they were on unemployment, and which isn't necessarily that doesn't that's not a judgment, but yeah. like 
They were on un- unemployment, but I could tell in the conversations with them, frankly, they were lazy pieces of shit. They really were. They were they were bags of shit, and I could tell they were going to be a problem. Yeah. And I also worried, like, are they going to be able to pay rent month after month? Yeah. And then I had these guys come look at that house the next day after those guys. These guys actually couldn't really provide some of the background information check stuff. Like they had IDs and yes. that kind of stuff. And and you can get into the whole border crisis shit. And I agree with a lot of it. But fact of the matter is they were here. They had IDs that they were given. Do I agree with the way they get them and stuff with the way the government hands them out? No, but they're here. They're standing in front of me. They have IDs. They have an entire Ford van full of sheetrocking tools. They're covered in sheetrock from head to toe. They had just come from a job. There was four of them, super respectful, uh, and didn't want to talk me down on the price. In fact, I was going to change the carpet and everything, and they were like, nope, don't change the carpet. You know, we come home dirty, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I could tell standing there that these are guys that are hardworking, that we're going to, frankly, what am I worried about the most as a landlord? Yeah. Paying the bill every month. Yep. And they were they are actively working and doing jobs every month, and- they actually, I think, had been passed up by a lot of people because they couldn't provide through a normal agency, like all of, I mean, there's a ton of stuff that these people yeah. require for renting a house. And I took them more at their word and I got some IDs and I got some stuff and they had a bank account that they showed me. And like, I was asking for like, uh, instead of like, uh, like paychecks, pay stubs. He just should, like pulls open his bank account and shows me like the balance in his checking account. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. And it was like yeah. plenty of money in there to cover a few months rent. Right. Um, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to trust you. Yeah. yeah. But I could tell I was talking to four guys that are working. Yeah. And to like, this is just, everybody's an individual, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you could stereotype people, but just because someone's white, someone's Mexican doesn't mean they're going to be a certain way. And you just have to treat everybody as an individual. And when you met them, you, you judge them based off who they were, not off their ethnicity. Right. Based off, you know, the vibe you got from them, that they're hardworking people. Yeah, if I judge the color of their skin and I was being judgmental in that way and trying to get someone that looked like me, I would have rented it to the people yeah. the day before. But yeah. it's not uh, – I also have a very uh, deep understanding and respect for why those people are trying to come to this country and it's why it's the reasons I preach to my kids every day how they lucky they are to live under our flag yeah it's like when my wife and I went on vacation down to Cabo uh there's a Mexican guy there that is friends with my buddy that went with us speaks perfect English and whatnot but he's native Mexican and he took us on a tour of like where they all live Mm -hmm. and I took a bunch of video and I brought home and showed it to my kids and I was like this is why these guys are risking their lives. This is why they're swimming rivers and they're packing their kids for hundreds of miles through the desert. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is why these people are trying to come in. It's it's our job to figure out how we want to control our border yep. and enforce laws. Yep. But if I'm them, I'm doing everything that they're doing and more yep. to try to better my potential future for my family, you know. So... Yeah, it's it's an interesting. We got obviously kind of get off subject there, but <laughs> it's uh the the point is is though with your dad or your wife's dad yes. or like my parents when they got married, I think they had fifty dollars and a chest freezer that they were they were given. I think a chest freezer for their wedding, um, to keep their meat cold. 
and they had like basically everything that they owned fit in a in a pickup. Yeah. And you know, 30 days, 30 years later, 40 years later, they own an excavation company with dump trucks and backhoes and excavators and all that. But much like we're trying to do with MKC, you know, there were no investors like in your dad's coffee farm or no investors in your dad's framing business. There were no investors in my parents' construction business. It's that bootstrapping one day at a time and you take $2 and try and turn it into four, yep. four to five and six, you know? And so, um, that's really why, like, I'm trying to build our company in that same kind of way. Cause like, that's the way I kind of saw modeled that I know if you, if you stay consistent and work hard at it, it's over time it pays off. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I see that now too with MKC and how it's growing. I love that. Mm-hmm. And it's been similar for me. Like I don't have one job, right? But all those jobs that I've done leading up to this point have led me to the position I'm in and have allowed me to do the things that I do. Um, had I not done all that stuff in the past, all those weird jobs that I've done, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd be able to be doing the things that I do now. Well, they make the unique, interesting person today that you are. Like the reason you're interesting to brands that are you're working with or supporting you and vice versa, the reason you're interesting is because you are multifaceted. Yeah. And it's because you can, if you're making some content or you're doing something, you can do something in the hunting space, in the fishing or diving or surfing space, you know, the off-roading space. It's a... Uh, it's a very like following you on Instagram and seeing everything that you do and some of the things you've done with like Sornex outdoors. Um, it's, you know, with Toyota, you're a fun and interesting follow because like you never not quite like sure what you're going to get. Like one day you're walking across the bottom of the ocean floor with kettlebells and the next day, you know, you're hunting elk in yeah. Colorado. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that's just my ADD. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, I appreciate that, Josh. Well, yeah. that 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 ADD though, that's an interesting thing. Like, have you ever actually been diagnosed with? No. So, a lot of people that are diagnosed with it and medicate for it, yeah. I actually think they're high achievers are like, hindering themselves. hundred percent in their potential. Hundred percent. I don't like, think young boys, especially boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is my opinion. And I'm going to probably piss people off yes. that are that are medicating their children not with Ritalin right now. Yeah, but I personally think I was that kid in grade school that really did not do well sitting in class. Yeah, um, like I almost flunked kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody flunks kindergarten, but like they kind of wanted to hold me back, and my parents wouldn't let them. I always just wanted to be outside with my backhoes in the dirt, or on my bike, or on my motorcycle, playing baseball working with, for my dad, like I never wanted to be in school really the entire time. And I barely got good enough grades to keep my parents just off my ass. Yeah. I made honor roll one year, three quarters in a row because the reward for that through the school was to go on a ski trip and my parents never took me skiing. So I just made honor roll three quarters in a row just to go on one ski trip for one day. And then as soon as I did that, I was like back to being a C student. Yeah. Yeah. I was horrible at school. Um, just book. I don't learn well learning from books and someone telling me like that. Um, the most wealthy person I know personally that I've hung out with hundreds of billions of dollars dropped out in 
10th grade, 9th grade, I think 9th grade. Um, my dad dropped out in like 10th grade. I'm not saying you should drop out. I'm just saying that there's certain people that learn different ways. And ADD kids, definitely, um, obviously there's some medication out there that some people need. But for the most part, we're very quick to jump on like, oh, medicate them. Yeah. And my daughter is very high energy. And she could have easily been, she could have easily been diagnosed with ADD and stuff. Yeah. Like they could easily put her on some medication just because of how high energy she was. And it just needs to be nurtured. Those kids just need to be entertained, sadly, a little bit more. Um, you need to put more effort into them sometimes. Yeah, it requires more potential work from a parent. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so for me, thankfully, I just had things that I was interested in. And I've always been like that. And I just, I, I like doing a lot of different things. Um, it just keeps it entertaining for me. Yeah, and, and to me, it's it's medicating someone because I'm, I'm not sure who came up with this. Uh, like it, it, it's medicating them to, to literally medicate them into a state where they conform to society. Yeah. It's out of convenience for you. I feel like, well, yeah, I always try to preface it. Like, you know, there obviously is some kids maybe need it, but like, yeah. yeah, it's like if you're a teacher and that kid's being a pain in the butt and won't sit still, that's hard for a teacher. And yeah, and he easier. probably just needs an ass kicking. Yeah, that's you probably. And that's and that's part of it. My <laughs> wife and I have actually kind of like uh, debated this because she was a teacher, and she does say, and I and I do think she's right. She does say there are some kids that are chemically definitely imbalanced, and they yeah. and they need a little bit of help. I I think there's definitely, and I don't know what comes from that. If it's a genetic thing, if their parents, you know, sadly there were times where I think parents had done, you know partaken in activities when they were pregnant that yeah that affected the baby yeah so maybe you have an overly hyperactive child that needs some some medication right um it's kind of like antidepressants for someone who suffers from depression um you know sometimes i think there's other ways that that can be treated but then sometimes medication is actually the the, the thing that's correct for that person um with children what i saw a lot with being around my kids and being around a lot of their friends over the last 10 years in school. And then I coached all their sports. I coached my daughters. I coached my son. Um, most of the time I felt like that kid just needed his ass kicked. Yeah. And frankly, he just needed more direction from the time he was one and a half and two years old and three. Yeah. And by the time he was 12, 13, he's an out of control little bastard. Yeah. And, the answer ended up being to put a pill in their mouth. And I, I personally, that's my personal belief. And I, and I think instead kids need more tough love and more effort and less, uh, here's a video game or a cell phone. Yeah, totally. Uh, to keep them preoccupied. Like it's parenting is hard and it takes a lot of work and it requires you sometimes stepping away from what you want to do and and pay more attention to what needs to be done with that child but i think that investment of time is ultimately paid back tenfold like i think you end up with sure. better kids more successful kids and frankly that's what our world needs yeah and you got some good kids um i've had a chance to kind of hang out with them and well behaved and respectful i and appreciate it it's 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 weird cuz i i grew up getting spanked and stuff and then um since i'm I just have one daughter, right? And my wife 
never wanted me to hit my daughter, obviously. So we kind of took a little different approach of just tough love, but definitely like you weren't getting away with anything. Like she doesn't get away with anything. Right. And if, if we threaten something, we, we make sure to follow through with it. That's where I see a lot of people fail. Yes. And all I can do is just focus on my own thing. And, you know, my, my kid, I love her to death. And she, the proof is kind of in the pudding. She's a good kid. Yeah, I she know is. It. Like when people hang out with her, she behaves herself. And so it was, you know, you pick your battles. There's certain things you just got to let your kids get away with just because you're annoyed with it that they're doing it. If, if you're going to say stop doing that, you better follow through. Don't let them keep doing it. And just stop doing that and then let them keep doing that. You got to follow through. That's one of the biggest parenting advices I have. That's only from being a parent myself. Um, it's just pick your battles and follow through with what you say. And, yeah, don't let your kids be menace, you know. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Like there's people who just let their kids scream and not say anything about it. Right. There's and and th- when I say they need an ass kicking, sometimes it's not necessarily. I'm not even talking to spanking. I'm talking. Yeah. You have to turn around and deal with yeah. what they're doing. And and you're a hundred percent right. I see people sometimes threaten things that are, you know, I'm going to take your birthday away, or I'm going to yeah. like, or take your I'm toy a, away. I'm going to I'm going to ground you for two months. Like, no, you're not. You're not. Like now, you could say, hey, I am going to take your 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 bike away for the next two days. But then you better actually take it away for a full two days, you know, or whatever that threat is, you need to threaten your child with something that's actually one, it fits the the punishment fits the crime. Yes. And two, it's something you can actually act on and, and follow through with, because then they start to trust that like, and dad says he's going to do this. Her mom says she's going to do this. He's going to do that. And they're going to learn. That's why I say so much of the parenting to me is done by the time they're three years old. Yeah. It, it, that that small time frame of, you know, like, hey, you need to pick up your toys or this is going to happen. Yep. Then you have to do that. And they start to realize at three years old, two years old, like, wow, everything they say, they do. By the time they're five, they're thinking, boy, if dad says he's going to spank me, yeah. he's going to spank me. Yeah. You know, I think it's two, it goes two ways too, right? Like not only are you training your kids to believe in what you say, but yourself. You know, yeah. as, a, as a parent, you're, you're building those habits of yeah. making sure that you're doing the right things and not just like not, not, um, following through with your actions. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, that, you know, we got off on that ADD thing, yeah. but it's, it's, uh, it's something that I think, you know, technically when you were 16, 17, if it was today, I believe a hundred percent Danny Bolton's probably diagnosed with ADD. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and I think, uh, I think probably myself as well. Um, yeah. but I think that's what makes you, uh, great. And I think it's what makes you interesting and it makes your mind constantly like looking forward for that next adventure, that next thing. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, growing up skateboarding, uh, you had to be like, you got made fun of if you wore skateboard shoes, if you didn't skateboard. Everybody yeah. kind of wears skateboard shoes now just because they're so popular and every Nike makes them and everything. And that's kind of just a casual shoe now. But if you didn't, if you didn't skateboard, you were, and you're wearing skateboard shoes, you were a poser. Yeah. So I learned that from an early age of like, you can't be a poser, you know, like you can't pretend to do something that you're not actually doing. So everything I've always done, I've tried to be authentic in what I do. 
You know, if I'm going to come across as a bow hunter, I better pour my heart and soul out into it and know that I'm able to do what it is when it comes to bow hunting. Um, well, and I've seen you, I mean, how long have you been shooting a bow? 2014. Okay. So nine years. Yeah. Uh, like I've been to winter strong at, at Sorenex's farm, Bert Soren's farm. Um, and you know, watched you be the, the captain of, of teams multiple years in a row go and, and shoot and, and win those competitions or place highly. Um, like here shooting out here at a hundred yards, you know, dropping dime after dime after dime, like that kind of stuff. The only way that that happens, there are certain things in life that you do that you can't, you can't fake. Yeah. Like if you stand there and someone shoots a group, a tight group time after time after time at a hundred yards, the only thing that that tells me is that person put a lot of work in to get to that place. Like they shot a lot. Yeah. It can't be faked. Um, and it's it's clear that like everything that you do, you definitely like you do to the fullest degree. Yeah, if I have the time for it, there's and I have the passion. That that's the thing is like it all comes down to passion for me. If I have the passion for it, I'll make the time. Yeah, it does. We all got time, right? We can get up early, stay up late, whatever it is. So yeah, I mean, thankfully I fell in love with bow hunting and archery just in general, and I just wanted to shoot all the time. In those first couple of years, that's all I wanted to do. So what are what are your some of your favorite things? Because you've gotten to do some cool things in the last several years with hunting. Um, like you just shot with Ranella, yeah, right, meat eater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I can say who else, but like, what are some of these other what what are some of the coolest things that this adventure lifestyles has gotten you into that you've you've like you look back today and you're like, damn, that was really cool. Okay, well, the first thing that comes to my head is just the people. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we can talk about the cool places I've been or the cool hunts, whatever. Um, none of that compares to the people that I've gotten to know. Uh, people like yourself, I'm up here now. And uh, people like Bert from Sornex. There's there's a huge list of those people that, to me, that's what life is about. Like those relationships that I have with all those people. Um you know, Hawaii will always be there. The elk woods will always be there. There will always be an elk to hunt, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But these relationships that I build with people, and some last, some don't. Some some may be the best relationships I've had, but they only last two years. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. You just like, um, but some will last a lifetime. And so I found when you're passionate about something and you can share that passion with somebody, and you, especially if it's something hard to do, and it's not easy. Um, there's a struggle there. I feel like the bond is even stronger between people who sh- struggle through something. So I, I would say that the relationships that I've made in the hunting industry when it comes to bow hunting and re- just hunting in general, it, there's no, I haven't found anything better than hunting. There's mm-hmm. spear fishing, which is amazing. Um, free divers can be a little odd. Uh, knife making, knife making is awesome. Knife knife makers can be a little odd. Yeah. Um, there's something about hunting and being out in the outdoors and just I don't know what it is, but it's been the one thing where everybody I meet, for the most part, is is authentic, and 
those that aren't authentic, it's all good, whatever, they just do the thing, come and go, but there's, there's something special about the hunting. And the first thing that comes to mind is just the people that I've been able to meet yeah. and hang out with. Yeah. People like Steve, um, you know, with Meat Eater, everybody's going to have their opinions about Meat Eater. And, you know, there's a lot of politics behind that. I don't know. I don't really dig too deep into that, you know. But I've spent time with him at his home with his kids. And um, I've been on a hunt with his kid. And it's just like, when I see people in that, when I see you playing with your kids last night and they're like trying to tickle you and stuff and like that's, that kind of stuff is special to me. And, and someone could be amazing at skateboarding, spearfishing, hunting. They could be an um, entrepreneur who's worth billions. If they don't have the family side, mm-hmm. it just doesn't even, I, I just don't even look at them like they're worth much, you know? it's like cool you have this great business but you're this delinquent father um and i just like my respect kind of goes out the door right there like i I just respect those things more and i feel like in the hunting industry there's a lot of respect yeah ranella one you know i'm getting to know him a little bit better and better and part of that's thanks to you as far as the connection goes but one of the things that's told me a lot about who he is was actually something that i got uh, not from him, but uh, I sent his son, a, I think a Blood Brothers uh, hoodie after that trip that you guys had gone on and he had gotten a deer and, you know, sent his kid a, because uh, Rinell, I think, had sent a picture of his son with a knife with the deer or something. Yeah. So I sent him a Blood Brothers hoodie and I got back a handwritten little thank you card from him, uh, from his son. Yeah. And, uh, very nicely written, not nice from a handwriting standpoint, but like he actually like, Jimmy boy. he put, uh, like he put time and effort into yes. writing that card and all in his handwriting, including the, the address on the envelope, the whole nine yards, like his parents didn't do it for him. That to me tells me a ton about how Steve and his wife raised their children. Yeah. Um, and that tells me a lot about that person, uh, right there. Like, uh, puts 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 me in a spot with him that I I have a huge amount of respect. Like you say, not I could give really shit about what he shoots or whatever, as far as like or how famous someone is, as far as on YouTube or whatever. Um, that stuff, you know, like t- to your point with like how Bert Soren is with his family, yes, and a lot of these other friends of ours that we we are around. It's the relationship side and stuff that I respect more than the business side, because. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really great businessmen out there that are terrible humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, kind of go. It's, it's tough because it's like a life balance, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like you're dancing that line pretty well. Um, but yeah, sometimes you got to give your life and soul to the business that you're running, and your children, your family suffer from that. Yeah, and it's, and, and, and it's interesting because like I, I I had that decision a little bit like this weekend frankly in this week where um i've been i went to canada bear hunting i was home for a very short amount of time and then i went five days bear hunting with Derek wolf and then you were going to be here in the middle and then now i'm taking off for total archery challenge and then not long after that i have other stuff going on including another archery challenge and then a ufc fight and all these things stacking up and i i'm i'm looking at the summer calendar and knowing that you were going to be here this weekend, I had a choice of like, 
go make content, go fishing, go hiking, go take the go fast camper out and go like do all this stuff. You know, and I have my kids every other week. So I have a week at a time. So I already miss half of my calendar already for the year, just starting out. Um, and then with the business that we are running, there's all these weekends with Western Hunt Expo and yes. Safari Club International and, you know, you name it, Winter Strong. All these things come up throughout the year and you start taking weekends off the calendar. Mm-hmm. And like this last particular weekend was one of those, like I had a choice to take another weekend off the calendar or kind of frankly have a little more of a like boring weekend for you, but yeah. but trade that for kind of just in taking my time and being with the family for the weekend yeah. and, and a couple of days here before like we ramp back up into more events and more busyness. No, I was so happy just to, to be around your family this weekend and I appreciate you having me here. Um, I, I've struggled with the same thing. You know, a lot of the work I do, I leave from yeah. home and I sat there and methodically calculated before I went back. Cause I, when my daughter's born, I started working full-time construction again mm-hmm. Then I could be home every night couple years of that and then i was like man this is kind of weird like i leave at five in the morning not home till four or five o'clock in the afternoon feed my daughter hang out with the family and then she goes to sleep and uh you know i wasn't spending that much quality time with them yeah uh so i sat there and i calculated okay if i leave for work for two weeks straight i don't see them at all but then how much money do i make when i do that versus how much money do i make when i'm home and then how much time am I going to be able to take off when I'm home and spend all day with them? It's a little different now that my daughter or once she was in school, cause you, right. But I, I've, I've sat there and I've calculated that out and, and decided like, okay, hey, this is the route I'm going to go. I'm not, um, I'm still going to be around when I'm home. I'm going to be around as much as I possibly can. And that's what I've seen with you. You know, it's like when you have your kids and that's why I brought up that point. Someone had told me that fact mm-hmm. when you, before your kids move out at 18 years old, you will have spent 90% of the time you'll ever spend with your kids to that point. Because once they move out, you know, they have their own families, they get married. You're only seeing them on the holidays, right? You know, you're lucky to see them. So that rest of the 10% of the time you're seeing them and who knows, maybe that is when you're, when you're old and busted ass and they're taking care of you. Yeah. They're taking care of that last 5% that you'll ever see them. So it's important. Those kids need their parents there and they need that family there. And I, I was so happy to see you guys this weekend and hang out and be part of it. And yeah, and uh, it's been fun. And it's cool that, you know, the one thing with like you and I are similar from the standpoint that uh, back when I had that lineman job, I was home every night. And like you say, there's kind of that like two hours a night type deal and um, that you get. But, you know, you're gone for quite a few weeks in a row here this summer, but you also have something that you would never do if you were working a construction job where like when your wife and daughter show up here in a couple weeks and you guys are going to go off on an adventure for like two weeks straight, three weeks, three weeks straight. And that, and that those kind of adventures and similar with how, what I'm doing with MKC, like whether it's taking my, my wife or daughters or, or Hank on, on a hunt or taking a family vacation uh, like we did last year and going up into Canada and fishing and doing that kind of stuff. Like you go these long stretches where you're gone a lot and you are missing a lot of stuff, but then you can put something on a calendar that when you're working just a regular day job, 
you really can't. Um, you, you know, like if you were working just construction in Hawaii, you probably wouldn't be spending three weeks in Montana and Canada. That's hard to find that time off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you do, that's all your time for the year, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a weird, it's a weird balancing act. And it's like, you're measuring time versus quality time, mm-hmm. um, experiences versus just, just again, just hours and time. Um, and it's tough because when they do, they get to that age. I mean, you, you see with what we're doing with our kids and stuff right now, like you have them, but then they're so busy doing their thing. Yeah. They're, they're gone a lot. You know, Sadie should have been gone this week. Um, next week they're gone a bunch. It's, uh, it's a tough balancing act with the calendar, you know, and all that, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so what, what things do you have coming up that you're looking forward to and what are some ideas, some things you want to do? Do you have like, you're always, like we say, you're kind of bouncing from this one thing to this next, this adventure. Uh, what what are some things that trip your trigger right now? I'm trying to, okay. So I've somehow slid into the hunting industry and figure out how to somewhat be able to pay some bills with it. Mm -hmm. Um, as strange as that is, but I'm trying to find a balance for myself to be able to do the things that I love. And I know much like skateboarding, hunting and spearfishing will always be something that I'll always do no matter what, Yeah. no matter if I'm getting paid for it or not. The off-roading job that I do, which is training the soft community, um, off-road driving and, and mobility and recovery on how they can get their vehicles unstuck and how to fix them and things like that. That's been amazing because their mindset is very similar to ours and I can relate to them because we both leave, basically get deployed. They get deployed. I leave from work. I'm away from my family. It's, it's so easy to relate to them Mm -hmm. and to be able to teach them something that I know takes, it takes effort, but it's just something that it's so easy. It's Mm -hmm. like, I just can show up to work and I have all the tools that I need you know, obviously we have tools in the truck and stuff, but like skills, skill wise, it just like, I'm not having to learn anything new, but you're still learning when I'm, when I am learning something new out there with them, that's part of it. You know, I'm not having to sit there and struggle. Like, how do I put together this, uh, you know, cabinet or something, or how am I going to make this level? Or I've never done this before. It's stuff I've never do before out there. It's fun though. It has, it doesn't have this feeling of work. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be doing more of that for sure. Um, possibly some civilian stuff as well. Because so, the military stuff is good. They don't complain, you know. Yeah. If, if they're camping in the rain, they don't They don't care. Yeah. You know, versus someone if they paid, you know, a thousand bucks or three thousand bucks, whatever it is, and then you're camping in the rain, they're kind of bummed. Yeah. Um, I'm also start, you know, we started the Boar Man brand back to kind of having an apparel company Sornex helped me out with some of that mm-hmm. and I kind of want to grow that I want to be able to work together with different brands and build that as a as a brand as far as something that inspires people to get outside get outside of their comfort zones some things that I've been able to do with my life and just push myself I want to see other people do that too mm-hmm. and I've always been a big advocate of pushing people into doing things that they're uncomfortable to do and that's kind of what that brand is and, and being respectful too and being a family man and basically handling all the things that we need to do uh, in life and not neglecting 
certain things. So when I, when I say that, it's like, you still got to be a family man, but you, that doesn't mean that you can't go do wild stuff still. You can't take off and go on these hunts. Right. Just when you come back, you got to make sure you're taking care of the responsibilities you need to. Mm-hmm. And then living in this modern world we live in, like I can't just go live in the, in the woods hunting all the time. Right. There's other things I need to know. You know, I need to know how to take pictures. I need to know how to use illustrator and Photoshop and stuff like that. So just always pushing yourself to do things that are uncomfortable and learn those things. And what I'm trying to do is combine all the things I love into one place. Right. So that's kind of where like the clothing brand is hopefully going to bring back similar to what I wanted to do with my original clothing plan, which was under the ficus was surf skate oriented. This is more just like life outdoors, hunting, spearfishing, all that. And then we are looking at possibly doing a TV show to kind of share all that. I've always loved filmmaking. Actually, the only thing I ever wanted to go to college for was filmmaking. Um, I wanted to go to Brooks and I never went to college. I went straight to work, you know? Yeah. But that was like the one thing I always wanted to do was make, make videos. We used to make dirt bike films and stuff and um, skateboard films when we were kids. And I, I learned to edit just on like iMovie, but I love the filmmaking side of it. Um, you know, this whole creating content, it's kind of weird. Yeah. But part of it is fun for me. Um, I don't mind sharing my life. I don't take it too serious. Right. I'm not too worried about what someone thinks about me. If they see me shooting my bow and I'm not using perfect form, I'm down to take um, advice if, if it's coming from someone. And I'll, I'll change my ways if I have to to make myself better. I'm always looking to get better. But I'm not worried if someone, you know, wants to just rag on me for something. It's like, it's all good, dude. I'm still learning. Right. You know, I'm I'm not, not saying I'm the best bow hunter in the world or I'm the best skateboarder in the world. I'm just doing my thing, you yeah. know, so I don't mind sharing that as long as it's inspiring people to do the same. And that's what's weird as I've had people, I'm sure much like yourself, people reach out to you. Yeah. And tell you, thank you for sharing that. That's inspiring. Yeah. And I, I see other people where I'm inspired by them yourself. And so I think it's important to keep, keep doing that and just keep sharing that and, and having fun while we're doing it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that the TV show thing I'm hoping is going to be a way to do some of the hunting and be able to afford to be able to do some of it. Cause I, I really only have hunted in Hawaii and elk hunting, right? I hunted in, I won't even say the States. We won't even blow them up, but I've, I've elk hunted for the last six or seven years. And that's it. That's the only hunting I've done out of Hawaii. There's tons of hunts. I'd love to go on. There's tons of places. I'd love to spearfish. Right. Never afford it. Could never have the time to do it, but I feel like I've honed the skills that I have. And I feel like I would be able to go do some of those things. And maybe the TV show thing might be a chance to be able to do those things and to share different cultures and, and places. Right. Yeah. I'm looking forward to one of the things I'm looking forward to a, a lot with you is actually watching your daughter grow up Oh man! and because she's a little, she's just a little badass. Yes. I mean, and it's really cool what you and your wife have done. Uh, y- you know, you've raised her a lot like you'd raise a little boy, right? Like it doesn't matter if she's a girl or boy, like she is super capable, um, super fit, like everything that you're modeling for her, like she's absorbing and, and uh, it's going to be cool to see her grow into a, 
a teenager and into her early 20s and stuff and see what she ends up doing. And I can see you guys uh, doing a lot of these things, whether it's the TV show or whatever. I, I can see her, you know, if she, if she, I'm sure is if she chooses, you're not yes. going to force her into it. But yeah. like if she chooses to do it, I can see her becoming a bigger and bigger part of what you're doing. Cause, uh, um, she's a, she's a, she's a really cool kid. I, you know, got to meet her and be around her a little bit and she's, she's awesome. So yeah, I think it's weird. It's like not the biggest fan of blowing her up on social media or anything or just having her exposed to the world still young, you know, but she's a badass. I mean, like bow hunting and, and wants yeah. to dive and a gymnast and super fit. Like she'll, I'll wake up, you know, and just be sitting there and it's like 630 in the morning. She's running around with a 20 pound vest on. Yeah. Like running around doing sprints outside. Yeah. Doing burpees. I'd like the other day she's doing back squats. I'm like, what are you doing, man? She's like a little maniac. It is, it is a weird thing as a parent. Like I, I, I actually struggle with that a little bit too. Like how much do you share and not share? Yeah. And I finally just got to the point where like I share, I, I figure you can be absolutely nobody and your girl just walking to school and there can be creeps around. Yeah. So I, uh, I have them keep their private, their, their accounts private. Yeah. So you can't get somebody being too creepy and creeping. And cause I can really control what I put on my Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my couple of my younger kids, you know, Hank and Macy both have to approve anything that they want to post through me yeah. first. So I have to see it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, cause I also tell them that's their business card for life. Yeah. You know, like frankly, when we get resumes now, like, I don't even consider hiring somebody until I see their social. Is that really, you can, you can lie about whatever on your resume, but you yeah. can get a really good feel for what a person is like mm -hmm. through their social media channels, you know? And so, uh, and especially if they're trying to get scholarships and stuff like that down the road, like I know for a fact, we, you know, we've, we've met a friend through Sornex that works for the Green Bay Packers as a coach. And those teams pour through those players' social yeah. medias. You know, one of the TV shows I just did with a real high profile, high profile chef, they had to scroll through mine. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I post some wacky stuff on there just because I think it's funny. Like I find social media for me is a lot of humor. Like I'll look at all the memes. I love that. I love the internet and I'll just crack jokes and stuff. But some people like my wife sometimes like, are you going to post that? And I was like, yeah, cause to me in my head, it's funny. Um, but yeah, when it comes to kids, it's, uh, I try to keep her off there. I, I do post some of her because I love her to death. Yeah. You know, I love sharing it. Well, you're proud of her. I'm very proud of her. Um, but I've had people think that I should post more just because it is an inspiration to fathers on how we're raising her. So maybe that time will come. It, it's it's weird. So it's a little different with a girl. Yeah. You know, the girls are different. My, I have a one friend who his son is a professional surfer. Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is his surfing. He he speaks for himself with his surfing, but the social media and Instagram and YouTube and stuff, that's all tools. Those are all part of it. Yep. Those are all part of it, and if you're, if you're making a living at something you love to do and you've already started that career at 15 years old, 14 years old, and that kid's going to travel all over the world and see all these places and already is, man, how, how could you deny giving that kid that right. gift? Yeah, know? that's actually what I've told my kids, and I like I've told Hank and whatnot, if you ever want to work in the outdoor industry and stuff, like 
you're actually starting to build a little bit of a resume now as yeah. a kid. Cause down the road you can be like, Hey, 10 years ago I was doing this yeah. and I was only 14. Um, you know, but it can also work against you if, you know, you look back and your Instagram is full of a bunch of trash, but, uh, <laughs> and it is weird with daughters. Cause like, you know, if we're at the lake or, you know, you in particular where you live, you know, uh, in Hawaii, half the people live in a bathing suit oh, yeah. most of the year. Right. Yeah. So it's, uh, you, you got, you do have to be careful about like the pictures you put up, like with us on vacation or whatever, you're trying to make sure you're putting stuff up that, uh, it's like you say, especially with girls where, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate. Um, but it's kind of the way the world is, but, uh, yeah, it's a strange thing. I've, I've struggled with it for a long time. I never took social media serious. Um, some people can easily make a living not doing it. You know, I could just go work construction, not post another thing in my life right? and make a living doing it. Um, I'm not saying it's making a living for me now, but it, I've lost jobs over it. Right. I've had jobs, automotive jobs come up and they ask to see your social media. And then I find out later that the people that got hired just had a bigger following than me. And that's mm-hmm. why I didn't get hired. Right. I'll never go chase the following. I'll just, it's, it's what you see is what you get. Right. And, um, but it's, it's a strange thing. Yeah. And I'm happy where I'm at. I just don't, I just don't care much, but I care enough to see not only share the things that I do just cause maybe it'll inspire someone else to do the same. And then also some of the, the brands that I work with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like knives are cool. Trust me. Uh, they're and they are amazing knives but like i'm not very picky and but to know for a fact that if these brands do well and they sell their product well then my friends get paychecks right and they get to feed their families and they don't have to go do a job that they don't want to do they don't have to go work at mcdonald's or something so that's the way i look at it like Mm -hmm. the more backpacks we sell for this company or more you know kettlebells we sell for sornex that's I look at all the people that I love in that, in that world, the family that's there, the people that work here, all the people that I've gotten to know downstairs. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that they're, I want people to work in a place like this. I want them to be able to go shoot their bow at lunchtime. I want them to be able to sit next to each other and make knives and be able to joke back and forth with each other about how their day went and for them to enjoy that. So that that's where my drive to push these companies comes from I never want to be a salesman like, oh, yeah, look at this knife. It's the best knife ever. You know, you're never going to buy it. I want it that, that to me, I can I can clean an animal with a butter knife. Yeah. I can sharpen a butter knife and clean an animal with it. But they, they are amazing knives. I just love to see the people, and that's where I really get behind it, is the, the atmosphere and the family that's behind these businesses. Right, right. No, it's awesome. Well, speaking of shooting bows, we should, about lunchtime, we should probably maybe get out there and shoot a few reps. We got uh, yeah. a couple of our shop employees were trying to sight their bows in this morning. Yeah. And uh, we got we got them to 20 and 30, so now we got to get them to 40 and 50. So That's amazing. Like, yeah, the, I, I do feel like the girls, dude, she, I mean, your wife, are you kidding me? Yeah. Some of the groups she's putting together, uh, it's so fun to see them grow and just, like, see, see their, their skills grow, you know, and their yeah. confidence grow. Well, I appreciate your, you helping out with that and it's been fun hanging out and, uh, looking forward to tax. So yeah, tax going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me here and, and we'll keep just, we'll keep doing good things. You know, I love it. Love to see it.